it, everybody. Welcome to another big day of the KFR podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bowden, fresh off a trip to my hometown of Memphis, Tennessee, where I consume copious amounts of sweet tea and the best damn barbecue on the planet. Reunited with two of my fellow outlaws who also graduated from Backyard Wrestling and the NWA, that's the Neighborhood Wrestling Alliance, to Jerry Jarrett's USWA. And finally, at last, I was able to tour the hallowed halls of the entertainment capital of the Mid-South, which was quite an emotional experience, which I will share with you today, along with the greatest co-host there is, was, and ever will be, the great Brian Last. That's right, Scott. I think we are all looking forward to hearing what it was like entering Southern Wrestling's most infamous arena after being, really, you know, such a big mark in the late 70s and throughout the 80s, and then... <laughs> <laughs> Something of a, of a performer in the 1990s. Oh, nice. Thank you. Wow. You know, the the, the mutual respect between us is uh, truly something special. Uh, you know, I, I remember uh, Dave Brown saying, reflecting on his relationship with Lance Russell, and he said, in 30 years, we never exchanged a crossword. And I, I don't think you and I can go 30 seconds without exchanging a crossword. But, uh, but at any rate... Um, yeah, it was a really special thing to to walk back into the Mid-South Coliseum, which, you know, it, it, it's amazing how small the building seems now. You know, when I, when I was a kid, it just seemed larger than life, almost like, uh, you know, I think I, it was around the time I'd seen uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I almost felt like that little boy, like walking, you know, getting, walking into the ship and uh, wondering where it was going to take me. And it really did take me to a fantastic new world. Uh, with outrageous characters and some of the wildest matches uh, I've ever seen, and some, some, you know, and I didn't even know that that uh, really it was some of the wildest wrestling in the country uh, with some of the top talent because it was all I knew. But uh, I will share all of that and much more. Brian, you want to tell them what else they can expect today? Also on today's show, Scott will tell us the real story behind one of the most controversial magazine covers of all time which came out this very week back in 1976 and the return of anatomy of an angle where Scott will break down the unlikeliest babyface turn of 1985, the crowning of the King of Jackson, Phil Hickerson. Gosh, man, you know, Phil Hickerson is one of those special talents, you know, a guy, a guy like Dusty Rhodes who really broke all the rules uh, en route to becoming a star. I mean, not a, he had this you know, natural athletic ability, if not an athlete's physique, uh, but he also had this incredible gift of gab. And just just the way he moved around the ring, it was almost it was very reminiscent of Tojo Yamamoto, just so like sneaky, like he was about to pull something, some kind of shenanigans that would give his team the edge. Uh, and he would do so in, in a way that was really clever. And it was and he was really good at hiding like the gimmick that they would use if if it were like out his manager, Al, Al Costello's boomerang or whatever to choke his opponent. They would do it in such a way where it didn't put all their heat on the referee, which is really kind of a, a lost art. Uh, Phil is probably best known as one half of the Donovan Tech team, the Bicentennial Kings, with Dennis Condry, who would, of course, go on to greater fame alongside Bobby Eaton as part of Jim Cornette's Midnight Express. However, several longtime Memphis fans, and maybe even Corny himself, still say Hickerson and Condry were the best team they ever saw. And as you said, Phil's shocking emergence as a babyface star, second only to Lawler, really, in 85 was memorable, but this wasn't his first go-around as a tough-talking Southern man the fans rallied around. As we go to a break, 
Let's relive some classic audio from the WHBQ studios in Memphis on Saturday, March 1st, 1975, as fan favorite and downright humble Hickerson discusses his upcoming rematch with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, this coming Monday at the Mid-South Coliseum. Heavyweight champion Phil Hickerson and Phil, uh, in your first effort in there, you had the hand raised, but there was a disqualification in there. And I got to tell you, in relooking at the film in there, it apparently uh, you had had something had that chain on your hand. At least the referee was certainly convinced of that. Right, well, you know, I said I was confident I could beat him, and uh, and beat him I did. But uh, like I said, uh, I got caught, and uh, so this week, this coming Monday night. And it's a no time limit, no disqualification. So now, we was in the tag team, when we were still tag team and everything, it seemed like every night we was in a no time limit, no disqualification match. Now, that's right up my alley, because I can go in there and I can use anything I want to. I think one thing that Ron Fuller knows that uh, I wasn't no pushover last Monday night. I was going to win that belt, and I'm going to win that belt before I give up. And this coming Monday night, I'm going to do it. And, uh, I want to bring that, uh, that belt back to West Tennessee where it belongs. I'm not some uh, long talk jerk uh, from Florida going to come in here and push these Tennessee boys around. They're not going to do it. So, uh, like I said, you know, Monday night it's uh, no time limit, no disqualification. Uh, I know I can beat him, and uh, I think he knows that uh, I fight fire with fire. That uh, I can just dish out just as much as, uh, as he wants to dish out. I think it was interesting, uh, Phil, that uh, you started out, you wrestled uh, absolutely clean, and by the rules, uh, Ron started jerking you around by the hair a little bit, and then he found out that uh, apparently he hadn't watched Phil Hickerson in a tag match because uh, you came back and set him back some of that medicine he was throwing to you. Well, I'll tell you, I've got to give a lot of credit to the guy because he is uh, strong and he's tough and he can take a lot of punch. He moves. They're on the end if uh, you notice that the normal man wouldn't have got up after that punch, and uh, and he did get up and walk out of that ring after that punch, so uh, I will give him credit for one thing. He is rough and tough, but... Uh, I think I'm just a little bit rougher and tougher. Well, I think it was kind of an amazing thing. A lot of the folks were wondering how in a in a, a major single challenge match like that, you going for your first singles championship after being a co-holder of a tag team championship, that you were able to go with Fuller that well, and it sure looked like it gave you the confidence, and you feel like you got it this week. I noticed in the bout with Dale Lewis, who is as tough as they come right down to fight, too. You, you hung right in there, and uh, did it help you pick up some confidence with it? It did, uh... Uh, and I learned a lot from uh, Monday night. I made uh, a few uh, mistakes, and uh, they're uh, constant mistakes. So, uh, like I said, everything's going my favor Monday night because, like I said, you know, I'm stressed at no time limit, no disqualification. So if it takes uh, two hours, it's going to take two hours, but I'll be, that's about all. Yeah. I just want to say uh, one thing. Uh, Eddie's still out, still out of, uh, of course, with his back injury and everything. And so I'm going to take his place in Jonesboro, Arkansas tonight. Uh, me and Tojo are going to be teaming up over there. Oh, hey, well, that's great. Phil Eckerson, uh, who is a man of not too many words, but lots of action when he gets in there. And that was Phil Hickerson from 1975. And I have to admit, when I first listened to that audio tape, uh, which I got from my buddy Chip Namius, who used to sit by his television with a audio cassette recorder and record certain parts of the television show in the early 70s to late 70s, I had trouble figuring out who Lance was speaking with because it was such a sharp contrast to the braggadocious, obnoxious Hickerson, who I love to hate for so many years. Uh, when asked to describe his tag team partner years later, 
Condry referred to Hickerson as a 300-pound dude who was athletic and quick as a cat. And, man, that is no lie. I mean, the guy could flat-out move. He's like, really, again, I just think of Dusty. Uh, you know, in, in, Dusty was in his prime from 75 to about 78 or 79, where he could just flat-out move around the ring. Um, promoter Jerry Jarrett uh, said the duo, which he put together, was pure magic from day one. Uh, they were a team who knew how to get heat and draw money. And man, how, how many guys can you say that about today when you're discussing the business? Not very many. Uh, and, and these guys were excellent at it in an era too, that, I mean, it was really hard to not only work your way up and get to that mid level spot and then get to that like co-main event spot and then get the main event spot. And Hickerson by and large, you know, once he got over, he stayed over and he was really uh, pretty much in at, at least in the middle and often the co-main event. And then if Lawler was involved in a feud over the Southern Tag Team titles, then Hickerson was always a fixture uh, on top. So he drew some really good money with both Jerry Jarrett and Nick Goulas. He feuded with Lawler several times on top uh, with a variety of the Kings partners, including Norvell Austin, Robert Gibson, uh, and of course, Bill Dundee, usually with the Southern Tag Team titles hanging in the balance. Uh, actually, he won bout in, uh, in Tupelo, Mississippi. It was the original concession stand brawl. And it was actually one of those times where, you know, <laughs> you remember the difficulty that Lance had in the actual Tupelo concession stand brawl, the one that aired in 1979 with Lawler and Dundee against the blonde bombers. Lance is really having trouble along with Mike Shields getting the camera down. And then the cord gets stuck and Lance is like, the, the damn cord is stuck, which they famously left in to give it an air of authenticity that this was not planned, that they were not ready to go down there. And this was, this was, you know, Maybe some of this stuff is fake, but this shit right here, this is real. Uh, and it certainly worked. But in this case, Lance afterward describes the aftermath and he's t and, he, and the way he breaks it down. And, but instead of mustard everywhere, it's candy everywhere. Hickerson and Condry and Gibson and Lawler, they're all bleeding. They're just wrecking the concession stand. And the way he breaks it down, it's almost a blow by a blow by blow pop of what would happen <laughs> later with the blondes and Lawler and Dundee. Uh, and it's just classic. If you watch if you watch that match, and it's it's actually uh, it's actually on YouTube, uh, when I'm under my old uh, handle T Sick Boy. And it's just a classic Memphis brawl. And so many Phil Hickerson matches that are out there, and there aren't many from that era, they're typically, they typically wind up with Phil juicing. He had like one of those famous foreheads that looked like a, just a roadmap of the South. Uh, and he just threw such realistic punches. And he was one of those guys who sold beautifully. I mean, he really came up. It was almost like the way a boxer will, will get tired and sell a punch and that was what hickerson brought to the table and I, and I also love to i love like pairing like a like a like a like a really heavy set pudgy guy who was a great natural athlete and pairing him with a guy who's a little younger than him thin a little bit faster in in dennis condry and and it, and you know condry could almost get away with the whole you know swinging you know good looking guy thing with uh 
catchy sayings on the back of his ass, but yet Hickerson doing it too. And I, and I, to me, that's just an instant heat magnet. I think in every era that, that I know of, except for possibly the Bicentennial Kings, Hickerson has got hearts <laughs> so like all over his legs and typically like a few tiny ones along the, the crotch area. And on the back of this, <laughs> the match that I'm talking about in Tupelo, in all caps on the back of his big white ass, sweet stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Phil Hickerson was just an absolute character. Matter of fact, on this day, as we're taping this in 1975, Hickerson and Condry were absolutely crushed by Jackie Fargo and his special partner, who he had to call in to handle these two, Andre the Giant. And what was literally the biggest main event, Nick Gillis had signed in many, 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 many years. Uh, you know, Phil was one of those guys who was already over tremendously as a heel. As a matter of fact, when they decided to finally turn Lawler full-fledged babyface after the successful crowning of the king uh, and the quest for the title program, it was Phil and Al Green at the behest of Sam Bass who betrayed Lawler, supposedly because of a bounty placed on the king's head by NWA World Heavyweight Champion Jack Briscoe. And it's very fitting that Phil was one of those guys uh, that worked on top, and it was instrumental in getting the fans to cheer for that no-good Jerry Lawler, the hometown babyface. At the end of 74 and going into 75, Lawler had a falling out with Jerry Jarrett, which we've covered in depth here on Kentucky Fried Wrestling, and he was sent in exile, booted from the territory after his head had gotten a little too big for his crown. I think the breaking point was a booking in Knoxville in which he had to travel and put over Nelson Royal with the winner to get a shot at Jack Briscoe. Uh, by the summer of 75, the King had triumphantly returned with the Stomper to regain his Southern title. And by 1976 was again knocking off the NWA's top contenders to get a crack, not at Jack Briscoe, but rather at new champion, Terry Funk. After wrestling to a 60-minute draw on October 26, 1976, Lawler finally got the 10 pounds of gold around his waist. In much the same fashion, he beat all the NBA's top contenders in 74, if not in reality, then with a little creativity. That we were just talking about uh, a little bit earlier, as he will be, in fact, defending his NWA Southern Heavyweight title. How does this feel, Banana Nose, to stand next to the world's heavyweight champion? Well, I did an interview with uh, Terry Funk, and uh, it was a tough bout. Uh, it was one of those things that went against you. but It was his toughest bout that he's ever had in his wrestling career because it was the one where he finally lost the belt. He lost wow. the title. I'll, I'll, let me rephrase that. He didn't lose the belt but he lost the title. He is no longer the world's heavyweight champion. You people are looking at him right now. Oh, come on, Jerry. Now, you're just claiming that you uh, are the world's heavyweight champion. The belt... Do we have... Do, do you have the slide I brought with you, the, the, the picture that I had made after the, after the matches there? Can you show that? And this may uh, wipe out any doubt in your mind. What is this now? We haven't seen this one. Well, it's just an official photograph that I'm going to... that uh, will huh? be distributed all over the country. That's exactly what it is. There it is. Can you can you get it down there and see what belt that is I'm wearing? No. That was taken 
immediately after the match Monday night, and around my waist is the world's heavyweight championship belt. I left the ring with it. I had it around my waist. I beat Terry Funk. And what more can you say? I am the world's heavyweight champion. So from now on, when you refer to me, you say the king, the world's heavyweight champion, and also the southern heavyweight champion. There you go. Well, there you go. Uh, the fact of the matter is that Mr. Lawler has just stated that he is the world heavyweight champion, and that makes him a claimant to the world heavyweight champion. Uh, I would remind the folks that that belt that you were talking about still remains in the... Uh, the belt is merely a trinket, just exactly like this one right here is. Merely a symbol. The title is what is important, and that's what Mr. Terry Funk lost. He lost the title of world's heavyweight champion. Okay. I possess that now you possess that now all right i know you possess the nwa southern heavyweight title we have no dispute about that there is a uh, very large gentleman who you met one other time before when you had the nwa southern heavyweight title you not only lost the title but you lost the belt to ron fuller and he is back 10 pounds heavier <laughs> ron fuller with he's 10 pounds heavier mm -hmm. well that's going to be an advantage for me the only way he won last time was he turned sideways in the ring and i couldn't see him he was moving all around like a string bean pole and I couldn't see where the man was. He's so skinny. How much did you say he weighs? 265, 6'9". Six, 6'9", nine. Six, nine, 265. Well, you figure out, distributing 265 pounds, his feet are size 14s, they're about this long, and then you distribute the rest of that 200 pounds right up 6 foot 9 inches tall, and that makes him just about this big around. Do you realize that, Russell? Yeah. And do you know what I'm going to do to him Monday night? I'm going to take him, and I'm going to take him just like you take a pencil, and I'm going to snap him right in two. His neck looks like a stack of dimes. I'm going to take my finger, and I'm going to thump him, break that punk neck of his, and then he's not going to be coming around here calling me a queen because there's one thing I don't take kindly to, son, and that's being called a queen of Memphis. As a matter of fact, we recently celebrated the anniversary of probably the most infamous wrestling magazine cover in history, and it wasn't even really a wrestling magazine. I'm talking about the November 6th issue of Memphis Magazine. Uh, that <laughs> Jerry Lawler told me the story because I asked him about it. It was one of those things where I, as a kid, I was pretty sure that my parents had a copy of Memphis Magazine that had Lawler on the cover wearing the NWA World Championship belt. And I would tell this to my friends, and they're like, oh, you're crazy, blah, blah, blah. I never, never held it. And I was thinking, you know, maybe they're right. I, I don't know. But I just, had, I just had this vague memory of it. And in 1993, I was dating a girl in Midtown, and there were all these, like, little – cool little thrift shops and things like that. And I was browsing through these magazines, just, you know, waiting to get out of there. She was looking at some, you know, vintage stuff that she was into. I think she was looking for some old punk rock records. Yeah. You would have loved this chick, Brian. Uh, and I'm sure, and I'm just flipping it. And suddenly there it is in pristine condition city of Memphis magazine, as it was then known with this incredible studio-like shot of Lawler wearing the NWA World Heavyweight Championship belt, the 10 pounds of gold that had eluded him is suddenly there. And then I flip it open, and there's like this huge spread, this article, and pictures of him battling Terry Funk, and then another picture with him draping the 10 pounds of gold across his waist. And I remember it was the day that Jack, Brick Jack Briscoe passed away, and I, I called Lawler to give, give some thoughts and Lawler was very respectful. Uh, 
it's it's funny with with the king you know he, he jokes around a lot he can belittle almost anybody he's ever worked with but guys that he never said a bad word about and always took a more serious tone were when he was asked about briscoe dory funk jr terry funk and nick bockwinkle and in the, it, you know, apparently the deal was he had, they agreed to a deal. Like Memphis Magazine, I guess, had been shadowing Lawler for about a week and taking photos, and they had set up an elaborate booth to take a picture of Lawler in the aftermath. And Lawler was telling the photographer, "Hey, I feel really good about tonight, so be ready. I think tonight's the night I'm going to capture the world's heavyweight championship." <laughs> so the photographer is there in position and ready for this. And they get Terry to agree to some kind of like finish for Lawler wins, uh, some kind of underhanded way. You know, again, one of those famous false finishes that Jarrett is known for. And, you know, they reverse it, but Lawler leaves the ring with the belt. Now, had Eddie Graham been in the building that night, like the night that, man, would Lawler has that first bout with Briscoe and they, he gets the three count after using the chain Lawler gets that belt for about five seconds. That re- <laughs> That is the quickest reverse decision you will ever see. And I can't help but think that was a little bit by design to make sure there are no pictures and, and no good camera shots of Lawler holding the most important belt in the business. But on this night, Lawler... <laughs> Lawler says he goes, I've never ran so fast in my life, which must have been a sight to see. <laughs> he gets he gets to the back and he and he rides up to the photographer and he's like, hurry up, hurry up, take my picture. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, I think we got about, you know, 10 or 12 shots. And they all look magnificent because, you know, the guy that like set up the whole thing and Lawler had taken some test photos beforehand. And they actually ran that photo on the cover. And the following week, Lawler was billed as NWA World Heavyweight title claimant. And suddenly, after about a week or two, that is even appearing in the newspaper like that, uh, advertising the week's uh, upcoming matches, that was abruptly dropped. And I asked Lawler, did you get in a little trouble over that? He goes, oh, yeah. (laughs) And he didn't elaborate, but... There is no way that somebody in the NWA didn't find out about that. Ah, oh, just unbelievable and just classic Jarrett and Lawler pulling the really the ultimate bait and switch. There aren't a lot of a lot of great photos of guys holding that title for very long. Uh, so it's a very very infamous very infamous cover. A lot of people have asked me the story behind it, and that is it. And really, I don't think I think Lawler seriously. He never told Terry Funk the story, and I, I what I did I, I you know once I found once I got it in '93, I had one copy of it, and I was telling my friends I was telling a couple of friends about it, and they said, "Man, I, you know," I said, "Yeah, I'd like to get." one or two more of these. And I went to Memphis magazine's website and there was no, uh, you know, you could order back issues, but I think the furthest they went back was maybe 1980. And so I actually called, <laughs> actually called Memphis. I'm such a Mark. I actually called Memphis magazine and, and the woman transferred me to the warehouse. <laughs> and I talked to this, this old lady who had been there. She said she'd been there for years and I asked her, she goes, oh, I think I remember a Jerry Lawler cover in the 70s. And she goes, hang on. And you, and you hear this like walk in this echo. It's supposed to be like this big, huge warehouse. 
And she comes, she has, you know, she just sets the phone down. And I hear her walk back about 10 minutes later. She's like, I got about 30 of them. How many do you want? And I think my friends and I bought about 15. And then, yeah, and then I posted it on my old Kentucky Fried Wrestling blog that they were available. And I think the first time Terry Funk ever saw it, like Lawler and Funk were sitting side by side at an autograph signing. And this guy who I told about it had ordered one and brought it pristine condition. Lawler nudged and goes, hey, that's the night I beat you for the world title. And Funk was like, you son of a bitch. Wow. Uh, just really incredible. Yeah, I have no idea why they couldn't get the votes to put the title on Lawler. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, I mean, you know, really, he he had already won it, right? Oh, man, that's what what is it about the 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 sneaky southerners i i I can't imagine why there's any doubt in your mind that it was mill mascaris on the night in question of january 29th 1979 the biggest fear of the nwa was we'll put the belt on one of jerry jarrett's guys we'll put the belt on jerry lawler and we'll never get that belt back and you'll lose it to dr frank (laughs) and well not even that we'll never get the belt back they'll they'll keep the belt and that's it we have to find the new champion oh come exactly on. what they did the Vern Kanye. <laughs> well not really i mean sort of but not really <laughs> what were their other options at that point come on right. anyway uh <laughs> let's get out of the 70s and fast forward nearly 10 years later now, Jarrett, at this point, had some of his most trusted soldiers and moneymakers from the past working on or near the top, uh, some of which after a long absence, uh, most notably the Mongolian Stomper and Phil Hickerson. Uh, this was in part because McMahon and Crockett were aggressively signing the nation's top talent and most of the promising up-and-comers. I mean, just when a guy would get hot in Memphis, he would get signed away, and they knew that Stomper and Hickerson were two guys who were not going to go national and that could be trusted. And they knew, most importantly, how to draw money. Um, actually, Phil had reemerged the previous year, 1984, as part of a bloody, memorable, memorable feud with the new and unimproved Fabulous Ones, Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert, winning the Southern Tag Titles again, this time with the spoiler. That's right, the legendary Don Jardine. Oh, hold on, hold on, uh, hold on. Hold sort on. Of you a, know a really, damn well, you know damn well that I, was not Don Jardine. I, I, dude, I'm looking at the results right here. Hang on. Oh, come on, it's Memphis. Frank Morell could be working completely in case that a burlap sack would recognize that barrel-chested ball dude. I, dude, I, are you actually suggesting that Jerry Jarrett would advertise a mass legend of the mat and bring in a ringer? Oh, I'm not suggesting it. That's draw. I'm telling you, he Are absolutely you did that. Not just here, but in 77 what? with Mr. Wrestling Dick Steinborn oh. and with the mass superstar David Novak in 1980. And frankly, I'm beginning to think it's very likely Jarrett fooled a very young Scotty Bowden into thinking that Mil Moskers came to Memphis and not only did that, but also insisted he'd be the one to do the honors on the stretcher because he was merely passing through Memphis. Yes, he was passing through onto the next town. <laughs> Come on, man. Right. Oh, dude, I can't see. You look for any opening that you can to turn this into a Mill Maskers argument. I wanted to keep this a Mill Maskers free show because I know some folks are tired of hearing about it until I have more concrete evidence, which I don't know what else I can do. 
They said, interview Jerry Jarrett. I interviewed Jerry Jarrett. They say, oh, well, ask Austin Idol. Ask Austin Idol. They said, what about Lawler? Uh, Lawler doesn't remember. Ask Calhoun. Calhoun remembers it, but can't say for sure if it was him or not. Dundee doesn't recall it. So I go straight to the source. I pay $50, which you have yet to reimburse me on my expenses, <laughs> to meet this mass prick. Get his autograph. Chit-chat. <laughs> yes, chit-chat with him. And he goes on, you know, and then he speaks in, in squared circles, saying, <laughs> saying, well, yes, I worked in Memphis. Oh, really? Yes. I, well, I worked all over the world. Uh, yes, yes, I know. But what about this night in particular? Ah, oh, yes, Austin Idol. Ah, uh, so you remember Austin? Yes, we worked in Japan. Yes, but what about here, this night? But he does give me the infamous check mark, which is my understanding that that is the most honorable way a Mexican signs his name. All right, this show is degenerating. Right. What are you talking what, about? The you know, honorable I, way. I, I live in LA, man. I, I'm I'm steeped in Mexican culture. You're where are you in New Jersey? Come on. <laughs> and plus, <laughs> I have it on good authority that uh, part of the reason Mil Mascaris wanted to come to Memphis because uh, it was Elvis's hometown. His big Elvis fan. Did really? you know that? No, I oh, did yeah. not know that. Where did you hear this? Hey, did you, what, did you see the picture I posted recently with uh, El Santo meeting Los Beatles? I did not see that, no. Yeah, it's a straight <laughs> shot, yeah. And as it come to find out, Mil Mascaris, huge Elvis fan. So it's all clicking now. Big Elvis fan, wants to come to Memphis. Did he meet Elvez? You know what I'm putting down? Hang on, hey, hang on, hang on a second. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling up some of that video from 84 with Hickerson and the original spoiler, Don Jardine. Let's see. Well, this is, now, we have to keep in mind, this is like Don Jardine in his later years. He's a little hunched over. You know what, I think... <laughs> what are you doing? I, I, I think you could be right. You think I, it could be right that it's not Don Jardine as the spoiler? Anyway, uh, it's irrelevant, really, who's under the hood. The main point is that Rickerson reemerged as a tag star once again. But in 85, he received his first big push as a single star, winning the international title. And again, this is just so Memphis. From one of the hottest stars in the business at the time, Terry Taylor, who some had talked about as even you know, taking over as uh, NWA world champion and being the next Ric Flair. Uh, and then speaking of NWA world champions, then the following week on two consecutive week, Hickerson, who has not even really been wrestling a full-time schedule. He's like managing some nightclub called wonderfully called Tremors <laughs> in Jackson, Tennessee. Oh man. What's shaking down at Tremors? We got to find out. Phil's running play. Phil's running the joint now. Let's go check it out. Uh, anyway, so he beats, Har he beats Terry Taylor. He beats Harley Race. And then Taylor comes back for a rematch, beats him again. I mean, this is not too bad, dude, for a guy who'd been out of the business uh, for years. And it was during the singles run where he was really turned loose on the mic. He didn't have a manager. I mean, of course, Dennis Condry never spoke much. And he delivered some of the most hilarious promos that had the fans and nearly even Lance Russell, who was usually just a total pro in stitches. Case in point, when Lance questioned how much longer Phil might hold the belt, the international 
heavyweight champion bellowed, I'll always be the champion. I love this belt, man. I take a bath with it. I go to bed wearing it. Heck, my old lady's got belt belt marks all over from sleeping with me. (laughs) It was always getting difficult for the fans to hate this guy as his delivery was priceless. So, of course, Hickerson was primed for a babyface run. Now, during this same period in 85, like promotions all across the country were really starting to feel the sting of the McMahon invasion, but not in Memphis. Uh, that summer of 85 was red hot, and Lawler had been feuding with the Freebirds, teaming with Austin Idol, and the foursome had two great brawls that drew really well, including a show attended by about 8,500 Memphians, including me, on August 5th, 1985. The feud had... Ignited quite literally when Lawler accidentally burned Michael Hayes' hair with a fireball following a match with Bodaw the Witch Doctor. <sighs> one of those unfortunate Memphis gimmicks. No one likes to discuss today. He didn't even get the intro ductry video from Jarrett's backyard. He just, they did a video with him like uh, twirling a, uh, I think a tiki torch that was maybe removed from Jarrett's backyard. <laughs> I remember on one of those WWE Legends of Wrestling roundtable discussions that's currently on the network, and Lawler revealed that Hayes won a larger payoff following the incident because his precious bleach blinded locks did actually catch fire. And Hayes, who was sitting there next to Lawler, said he actually got an extra hundred bucks or something from Jarrett, which really, if you stop and think about it, may have been his greatest accomplishment ever in the territory. Another guy who liked to hold up Jarrett for more money was Austin Idol. And I'd like to say that was very likely the case here as Idol was abruptly pulled from the hottest feud of the year, leaving the promotion scrambling. Now, I'm not sure. I've been always trying to I've always tried to piece together the timeline of the story. They talk about where Idol had come back into the territory at one point and they were doing good business. They had just wrestled in Memphis and they were going to Louisville. And it was at some point in the mid to late 80s. And I and I'm having I'm 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 really thinking that this that this this was it. And Idol somehow conned Lawler and said, so, 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 my story was like, hey, I'd I'd rather you mind if we stop off by the airport before we go to the garden. I want to pick up my ticket. I want to go ahead and have my ticket in hand. And Lawler's like, all right. So Lawler pulls up. Idol gets out, and about an hour later, Lawler realizes that son of a bitch just boarded the plane. He's going home. I, you know, I can't say for sure, but hey, no problem, right? Let's just pull something out of our ass. Instead of bringing in another big name, let's just give the guy, the international heavyweight champion, who's been clamoring each and every week for more respect. You know, he was like the Rodney Dangerfield of Memphis Wrestling. I get no respect out here, man. What's a guy got to do, man, to get respect? I beat a ball. Come on. So Lawler explains that Austin Idol has suffered crack ribs from Lord Humongous, who used to wrestle in the area and Lawler handled and beaten. And now he's suddenly has put Idol on the shelf. So I guess that was a little dig at Idol there. And he brings out the biggest little black book you've ever seen. And boy, <laughs> and boy, Brian, it really boggles the mind to think of all the names and numbers in that book. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I, my understanding, it was only A through D. That was like volume one of the Little Black Book. Uh, the king claimed he was calling Valiant, Dundee, and possibly even one of the Von Erics. Boy, that would 
that would have been interesting, right? <laughs> and and I remember as a kid, like watching this unfold, and I'm thinking, oh God, pl- please don't let it be Mike. <laughs> like, what? I'm sorry. I just, you know, he just wasn't really doing it for me. Anyway, uh, after those four guys failed to answer the call, actually, Lawler was only able to, to actually get a hold of two people on the phone. Bill Dundee, and they actually plant the seeds beautifully for Dundee's return down the road, saying that uh, he had won a match to get a shot at the Southern title, hadn't gotten it yet. And Lawler says, well, I don't even have the belt anymore, Bill. And Dundee says, well, I'll come back in when you do have it. And Lawler goes, so apparently he wants to wrestle me for the belt, not just the Southern champion. Again, beautiful, because it sets it up like three months later. And the other guy who Lawler claimed to have to talk with was Jim Crockett, who explained that, Uh, I can't get a hold of Valiant. He's on the road. He's booked solid. So (laughs) Lawler Lawler really has no choice. Phil keeps coming out, playing the role of a supposed international superstar, begging the king to let him be his partner, saying, Lance, Lance, tell him, uh, Lawler and Hickerson together can beat anybody in the world. In the world. It really, there was that long, it was a song, the world. And my friends and I, for months afterward, what if we saw some hot chick at school or something? Oh man, she's the hottest chick in the world. In the world. Uh, but enough of my yapping. Here's Dave Brown to set up how the King of Memphis and the King of Jackson united to form wrestling's own version of tag team royalty. You know, a lot of people uh, know how the pairing took place uh, between Jerry Lawler and uh, Phil Hickerson, but for those of you that missed it, we have a little recap of how the king, Jerry Lawler, got together with Phil Hickerson, and also the result, what happened as they went against the fabulous Freebirds. And uh, I just called him just now, right after the interview, and uh, apparently Austin was wrestling last night in Pensacola, Florida, and he said that he... Um, he thought at first that he had four broken ribs, but they, the, he, in a match uh, down there against this guy that's uh, currently the Florida champion, Humongous, who uh, wrestled here before. Uh, anyway, he wound up their bruised, they're taped, and the doctors told him not to wrestle for at least a week. And so apparently, uh, after this interview that I just made, Austin Idol is not going to be able to be here. But what I am going to do right now is... Uh, uh, Maybe I could. I, no, I'm not going to let you decide. I'm going to decide. Anyway, I'm going to go call either Bill Dundee or the boogeyman, Jimmy Valiant, right now, and we're going to get somebody in here. Monday. Okay, I hope we can get. And Jimmy is booked in North Carolina, already booked in a title match over there, and so it's not going to be able to get him out. Dundee, for some reason or other. Don't uh, come out here, please, causing any trouble, Phil. And, no, wait a minute. Anyway, wait a minute. let me talk. Let me tell. Anyway, and Dun- Dun- Bill, Bill Dundee, I talked. I talked with Bill Dundee. And I heard Hickerson, what he said out here earlier, and apparently uh, there is some sort of problem. You know, uh, Bill Bill won a match over Bowtie, and he was supposed to get a shot at my Southern title, and he said he was still waiting on that shot, and I said, I don't even have the belt anymore, you know, and he said, well, I'll wait and come in when you do have the title, and he wants to wrestle me for the title for some reason. Anyway, Bill Dundee is not coming, but Lance, I have a, uh, a lot of telephone numbers here. There are a lot of guys around the country that don't like the Freebirds. I was just thinking uh, the Von Erichs, possibly, uh, somebody like that. Uh, so anyway, I'm going to make some more phone calls, and I will, I will get something. Okay, Put Jerry. that book up, brother. You don't need no quarter to call anybody in that book. You can talk to me. I'll be your partner, man. Hey, together, Lola, me and you can whoop anybody in the world. 
in the world. I'm telling tell him, Lance Russell, that Lawler and Bill Hurst can beat anybody in the world. Bill, we know you're tough, but we I don't can, think anybody trusts you. We can retire man, the free birds, the sheep herders, man, the road warriors, you name it. And, boy, we'd be in lights. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, man, we'd be in lights, Lawler. Names and lights, right? right? Let me just say this, Phil. You know, you're as easy to see through as a pane of glass. The problem with you is you want recognition. You want your name in lights, right? Sure. You're the international champion. I'll admit. No respect out of it. No respect. I'll admit that you are a tough wrestler. Right. You know, you beat a lot of good men. Terry Taylor, Harley Race, you've got the title. I'll admit all that. But you want the recognition that you think you deserve. And I think that what you got in your mind, Phil, is the way that you're going to get all the recognition, as you said, worldwide, the way that everybody would be talking about Phil Harrison would be He's the man that turned on Lawler when Lawler let him no, get man, yeah. turn no, 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 no. And when I'm going against no, some guys, when I'm wrestling against the Freebirds, you've already seen what they're capable of. i got to have somebody, feel that I can trust. So thanks, but no thanks. I'll call trust you. is the word, and that is exactly. You can't blame. Hey, all I'm telling you, you want to... Coach Buddy Wayne getting involved on the other side. Lawler hey, coming in with Smothers getting pounded and right out of the ring. Jerry came in, and here come the sheep herders. We got a ring full. The sheep herders pounding Jerry Lawler. Sexton and Mr. Class still working on Smothers and Crazy uh, Right. Here's Phil Hickerson. Hickerson he goes after the sheep herders. So it's Lawler and Hickerson against the sheep herders. Trout, or, uh, Sexton and Mr. Class over here. I helped you out, man. I'm telling you, if we'll do it, we'll beat everybody in the world. We got a minute. All right, let me just say this. I've made several phone calls, and I'm unable to come up with anybody. And as I said, I know he's tough, and I know I believe he and I together could beat a lot of people, but I still don't trust you, Phil Hickerson. I'll tell you what I'll do. You got the international title. You take that belt. You give it to Eddie Marlin, plus you give him $5,000. Can, can you come up with $5,000? Yeah. You give Eddie Marlin the belt and $5,000 to hold to prove to me that you're not going to try any funny business on me, and I'll take you as my partner. Yeah. You go? And immediately, Lawler ends up trusting uh, Hickerson so much that they do this, they do this wonderful video uh, that's of the, of the previous Monday night's action. That's uh, where Lawler takes Hickerson as his partner for the first time. Hickerson has to put up five grand and give Eddie Marlin the international heavyweight championship, which I believe was made in a shop class uh, somewhere in Shelby County. Uh, very prestigious strap indeed. So there was a lot at stake for Hickerson to uh, remain true to the King. And, it, I believe it was Bruce Springsteen's cover of Stand On It. And Hickerson and Lawler come out, and Lawler is, you know, got his usual royal garb on, and Hickerson is right beside him with this crown that's like, it almost falls off his head, and he's got to kind of hold it in place. And in this, this probably one of Lawler's very first tapes that he ever had made that he pulled out of a, a moth closet and he's suddenly he's the king of jackson and it's just absolutely perfect and they have this incredible brawl with the Freebirds, and it just they brawl over all over the building they brawl to the back and calhoun just has to throw the whole thing out they come back the following week for a rematch a tape fist tag match uh which was loudly 
protested by these squawking birds. After all, as Terry Gordy, <laughs> as Terry Gordy so eloquently points out, he never claimed to be a boxer, man. Let's go to that clip right now. You know, it seems to me, man, that what is going down here or what is actually happening is becoming what you would call a Southern rivalry. That's right, baby, you could call it a state rivalry. Because last week, you see, Lawler, we done got rid of Idol. Idol don't want no more a bad street. And you had to go out and search and you couldn't get nobody to answer the phone. So you had to look in your backyard. And you went and you got Tennessee's toughest guy from Jackson, Tennessee. A no good Benedict Arnold, a coward. And now it's like Tennessee against Georgia, man. And when I think about Tennessee against Georgia, have you ever heard of a Heisman candidate from the state of Tennessee? Have you ever seen Memphis State ranked in the top 30? Have you ever seen the University of Tennessee in the top 20? You see Georgia up there all the time, don't you? Just like you see the Freebirds up there, man, because that's the way we are. We back Dixie. And when the marquee says wrestling, that's what we do, Jack. And that's what we did last Monday night. We out-wrestled them. So what do they want to do now? They don't want to wrestle, man. They want to put tape around their fist. Why? You jealous, huh? Are you jealous that you don't have a face like this or this? Are you jealous because when you walk down the aisle, that fiancés, girlfriends, wives, and even daughters quiver and shiver and get that funny feeling, huh? You want to mess our faces up because you just because they've been in bars and knocked out a bunch of drunks, man. We're not a bunch of drunks, you know. Did I ever say I was a professional boxer? No. Did I ever say that I wanted to go in and fight like a boxer? No. But I am a professional wrestler, man, and you know this is a conspiracy against the Freebirds. They take and they put us in a match with Tate Fizz. Well, let me tell you something about this, what I think about it. I think about you, the guy that calls himself the king. I think you're a disgrace. To the whole wide world, man, I knew the real King Lawler. I knew it, and he didn't like you, and he didn't like nobody in Memphis. That's how come he put the gate up around his house to keep all y'all dirt out. Now let me tell you something, boy. If you want to come in and you want to tape your fist up, well, you come right on, you thank you, because I got something for you, man. I've been doing this all my life, and they're sticking me in a tape fist, man. And I'm a professional wrestler. I never claimed to be a boxer in my life. But if you want some of it, if you want to back me in the corner, man, you just back us in the corner, because we'll take care of you, Lawler. We got a surprise. You just wait. And apparently, Bam Bam was also pretty tight with uh, Elvis Presley. A fact I didn't know. Maybe, yeah, Hick- uh, wait a minute now. Yeah, Gordy was around. Freebirds were around in 79. Maybe maybe Gordy was able to introduce Maskers to Elvis Presley. Anyway, Elvis Presley was dead in 1979. <sighs> well, that's just nitpicking. All right. He could have taken him to Graceland. Was, that's Grace- what I, yeah. was Graceland open to the public in 1979? Oh, yeah. I think that was a quick, yeah, that was a pretty quick transition. I think they were already planning that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, man, I got dragged down to uh, Graceland uh, the day Elvis passed away for Candlelight Vigil. 
Uh, and that was an area of town at that point that you really didn't go to if you didn't have to. Anyway, the babyface turn of Phil Hickerson was certainly unexpected in 85, but it was one of those pleasant surprises because the guy could still flat out work. He could talk the fans into the building. He later switched heel again and feuded with Scott Steiner. Uh, and, I, and I believe uh, Scott Steiner in at least one shoot interview said that he learned a lot uh, from working with Hickerson. And I know Hickerson was also very involved in a lot of the early matches with Steve Borden and Jim Helwig when they arrived in the territory as the freedom fighters and later switching heels as the blade runners. Again, one of those blatant ripoffs of pop culture that Jerry Lawler was famous for. And most important for the next four or five years, Hickerson remained a good draw and would pack the fans into the Mid-South Coliseum. Again, usually in that mid-level spot, or right below the main event. Always in a great spot for Phil Dickerson. Man, I uh, which brings us to a very uh what might be might might get a little emotional. Uh, I had a homecoming of sorts recently. Actually I did go home. Uh it was supposed to be a brief stop uh where I would uh meet Jerry Jarrett and we would tour the Mid South Coliseum. Well uh, as some of you know, uh, I uh, <laughs> I have a very demanding freelance client base, let's just say, and I had a, a, a PR emergency on the way to the airport. I had to have two press releases done by the time, in between the time I landed in Memphis, which is at midnight, and the following morning. And this is also the first time that I've seen my mother in months uh, since my sister passed away in December. And so by the time my mom picks me up, we go grab a late night burger at Huey's, which is always a must have whenever I go home and I get to her apartment. I'm really in no shape to, to, to write. I mean, and I mean that from an emotional standpoint, my mom and I did not get, get hammered at Huey's. Uh, it was just obviously an emotional talk. And, uh, so I was having, I was really having trouble concentrating. I was, ended up, I was up most of the night working on these press releases. And then I thought, well, I might as well wait for the feedback. And I got the feedback and I said, well, I've got to shut my, I've got to shut my eyes for a little bit. And so I got on the couch and the next thing I know it's nine 50 and Jerry Jarrett's calling me wondering where the hell I am. And I'm so embarrassed. And I'm like, I, I explained that I still have all my bags packed and I'm dressed and I can be there quickly. And he goes, well, you know, there's another tour starting at, at 11:30. you know, don't rush. And I said, okay, so I get there. So I get there, and I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe he's Jared's going to go grab a bite to eat because we're supposed to ride together to Nashville because uh, we're working on a project together. And I get, I uh, anyway, long story short, I get out of the Coliseum tour, and and Jared's gone. <laughs> I guess he thought it was like a Coliseum show, you know, like, well, he didn't get to ride with me. Maybe he'll get a ride with Tojo, you know. I, <laughs> trouble is, Tojo's not around to to grab a ride with, and. I end up not going to Nashville until I have to catch my return flight. But at any rate, I did get to finally tour the Mid-South Coliseum. And as I'm walking up, you know, I I wanted to kind of dress for the occasion, you know. So I pull out my old Florida State starter jacket. I've got my Florida State football helmet in tow. I, oh, no, I'm dead. And the guy leading the tour 
was so rude to me. I, actually, I and I happen to have my tape recorder in my skinny jeans. You know, the one I was telling about, the one with Mill Maskers, where I recorded the audio accidentally. I actually picked up this piece of audio. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. He was so rude. Listen to what he said to me. Look at that fool. Look at that idiot. Don't you realize that there's nobody here? You jackass. Again, it's just really uncalled for to do that. So I, I took the stuff off. But anyway, uh, just walking in, and man, it, it really, the best way I can describe it uh, was after my grandparents passed away. Uh, my grandfather passed, and then my grandmother passed about a year later on my father's side. Uh, and they were the grandparents that I was close with. I was not particularly close to the ones on my on my mother's side. And we went to the house for the first time in, in many years. And you and it, you walk in, and you're older, and the place just seems so small. And in fact, it was. I mean, my parents uh, both came from the middle class, which at that time, you know, my parents were, were baby boomers, and so it wasn't uncommon for brothers and sisters to share a room. And that's exactly what my dad did with his sister and his brother. They they all shared one room and somehow made that work all through high school, which is just incredible to me, uh, especially with my Aunt Barbara involved. Uh, I don't know how in the world she put up with it. But, you know, as a kid, we would spend Christmas there and the place just seemed a lot bigger. And when we would go, there was always there were good times at my at my grandparents' house, and there was also like a lot of controversy and and uh, sometimes a lot of drunks, and much like the Mid South Coliseum, you know, you never knew exactly what you were walking into when you walked in the door there, and to see it so silent and barren, uh, it it was haunting, and I've never forgotten that feeling when I walked around my grandparents' place. And I was so reminded of it again when I walked in the Coliseum. It was so dark, you know, and they, they, they make a big deal about this waiver that you have to sign, uh, saying that, you know, if you're injured on the tour, I mean, it's, it's a very, <laughs> if you read this thing closely, you might think twice about actually taking the tour. There's very little, there's some power in the building, but uh, obviously most of the lights are turned off and it's very dark. And, and it's like when you look through your, your camera, in uh, a viewfinder, it's it's almost like one of those shows, those uh, ghost hunting shows uh, that my wife watches, where they never actually find anything. But you know, in the in the in the wind, it was actually really uh, downcast and and overcast that day, and really gray and dark, and the winds were just whipping, and it was whipping into the Coliseum. And it just it really felt like uh, the ghost of of Memphis's past, not just Memphis wrestling, but like every entertainment uh, aspect that I grew up with as a kid from the Harlem Globetrotters to Memphis State basketball to the circus to Memphis wrestling, Memphis wrestling being the big one. And uh, all the concerts, the very first concert I attended, uh, Van Halen show and a ZZ Top show shortly after that. And it just all came flooding around me. And, you know, because my sister used to work at Sears and they were a, a ticket outlet. And so she would get me really good seats. Uh, and so I was able to become like kind of the cool guy at school there for a while because I could get Metallica tickets on the ninth row. And just all those things, you know, just really came flooding back. 
we started walking around and, and, and it was also kind of sad to see that, that, that this grand building, you know, the entertainment capital of the mid South has been relegated to really the, it's almost like the world's biggest storage unit. Uh, the big Liberty bell that they, uh, break out for the Liberty bowl game is stored in there. The nachos machine, uh, from all the, for all the concession stands at the Liberty bowl, they're all kept in there. Um, it was kind of convenient though, cause I made myself a little lunch, um, when the tour guide wasn't looking, but at any rate, um, we kept pushing on forward and we went through the, uh, one of the main corridors and I looked down at the main ticket area where my uncle Robert and I, cause Memphis was such an advanced town. I don't think we ever bought advanced tickets and it was just like part of the ritual when you drove in, my uncle would try to especially after the first couple of times it's taken me, he would try to find the, just the right parking spot that couldn't possibly be, be blocked in under any circumstances. And one that he could like go out head first and get a jump on the traffic. And then you would just wait in this line. That's usually started if it was a good card. And typically I would wait until the world champion came into town or it was a big grudge match, a big blow off. The line would be snaking out the door and you would just wait. And, I, you know, in this day and age with everything so convenient and you buying tickets in advance and, and already having them and walking right in, I don't know if fans today would put up with it, but it's hard to explain. It almost added to the anticipation of it all, you know, because invariably you, we would be talking, you know, with the people in front of us about the upcoming matches. And, you know, if somebody always felt like they had some inside information, I remember the first time that I that uh, somebody suggested that it was the Dream Machine, uh, there was Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, under the hood as the Dream Machine was from an older African American gentleman. He's like, "That's that guy on those stand back commercials." And of course, I was reading all the rest of the magazines. I'm like, "Dusty Rhodes?" He's like, "Yeah, he's doing that because he's he's protecting his his reputation as the Dream." And I went, "You know, that makes sense." <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why those commercials have been here all of a sudden in Memphis. Oh man, just just classic stuff like that. And, and there was also like that particular night where you know it's the first time I'd ever seen like people sitting in the aisles. I mean, they clearly oversold the building. And I've said this story before. Fans literally, literally kicked the doors down to get in. There was actually a mad rush of fans who burst through the door and I don't think they caught all of them. Um, and judging from the looks around the general admission seating area, which we were, we were way up in the nosebleeds, probably about 200 tickets away from not getting in that night for Jerry Lawler's triumphant return after a year long absence from a broken leg, which to this day there, I'm sure there, there may have been bigger pops somewhere. But man, in that Mid-South Coliseum with the way it was shaped and those acoustics, watch it on video. It's on my YouTube channel. It The pop is absolutely tremendous when Lawler comes up through the stage floor mimicking an entrance he had seen Kiss do the previous year, which I think it was, you know, Lawler t does the timetable and then I look at the Kiss dates and I'm like, going, wow, Lawler must have been hobbling around on a cane. <laughs> <laughs> during that show, which um, which must have been interesting. Uh, I also think about the story that Lawler told me about the night he met he met uh, the humbling. It's very it's very rare for Lawler to discuss a humbling moment, uh, but this was I think in 1977 or 78 when the Rolling Stones came to town, and Lawler said, "You know, 
I, I, I can pretty much go wherever I want. So I show up and the show, you know, the, obviously the show is sold out, but I just walk in through the back and I'm hanging around and I'm, you know, kind of hoping that I run into the band. And all of a sudden he goes, I, I go up to one of the concession stands in this back, uh, this uh, little back area. And I, you know, there was a woman there who I knew and she gave me a free box of popcorn and a Coke. <laughs> so, so imagine Lawler wearing, you, you gotta be wearing one of his black t-shirts with his mug on it, <laughs> eating popcorn and drinking a big soda. And he goes, I look over and about a hundred yards away coming straight at me is Mick Jagger, just Mick Jagger. And he goes, he's getting closer and closer and closer. And his eyes, and the closer he gets, I realize that his, his eyes, they're googly eyes, like almost like a, like a Muppet character. And he goes and the more, and the, and he's just making a beeline straight toward my path and i'm thinking oh i wonder if i wonder if he's a wrestling fan because <laughs> i had this brief moment where somehow some way mick jagger might actually know who i am and he's coming up to meet me and he says that mick gets closer and closer and closer and his eyes are really trying to fixate on lawler and he said at one point he looked at lawler's shirt and then looked up at his face and his eyes got really wide <laughs> So I can only imagine uh, what was happening in his uh, drug-induced state at that point. And he stops directly in front of the king and tilts his head from side to side, looking at Lawler, and then steps right around him <laughs> and continues that line. And Lawler doesn't say a word. Pretty classic. Um, another person who's rather infamous in Coliseum history who Lawler did not enjoy sharing a word with Beth Wade, the general manager of the Coliseum in the late eighties and early nineties, the one who, according to Lawler and Jared, they say kicked Memphis wrestling out of its true home. Uh, it's kind of a long story, but obviously Memphis was not drawing like it used to, uh, by 88 and especially 89 things really took a downturn but they were insisting on still opening up the entire coliseum when in reality it would save the coliseum a, a lot of money and thereby save the promotion a lot of money to close off the general admission area now i had not said in general admission in years that my uncle tried it because it was the cheapest seats we tried it twice, both times. Things got so rowdy, people throwing whiskey bottles and cursing and yelling. I mean, words I'd never heard before, and I've never heard again, as a matter of fact, <laughs> that we had to talk to an usher who would move us down to the loge section uh, near ringside. Uh, and I would not sit ringside until my first world title match between Lawler and Bockwinkle in August of 79, because, you know, special occasion. But uh, anyway, there's this photo of Beth Wade that looks like it was hanging on the wall at some point, And then just it just gave way. <laughs> it just collapsed. And part of it like cracked. And it's sitting there shattered. It's almost like in the, the Twin Peaks photo of the homecoming queen. It was murdered. And the tour guide's like, and, and the tour guide's kind of looking at me. And he's like going, so what's the, you know, what the, you know, Jared Lawler say one thing. And I said, well, to me, I, I, you know, I understand where she's coming from, uh, but I guess from their viewpoint, they had really been the biggest drawing act for so many years that if they wanted to keep it open, 
I think she probably should have gone with that. She had zero respect for the history of Memphis wrestling and all their accomplishments, even though those days were likely not to come back again. Uh, Lawler and Jarrett also made a very good point that, you know, the stragglers who were hanging on to that general admission section could almost get away with doing anything up there. They would be thereby forced down into the loge and ringside area, theoretically, and interfering with all the families in attendance. Now, frankly, I never saw too many like big families at the matches. Uh, you probably might see like three boys in and their baseball coach or their dad there. Uh, but I didn't see a lot of traditional families necessarily growing up. And again, I think that's one reason why wrestling attendance suffered a little bit in 82 and 83 with the baby boomers like my father moving out of North Memphis and Frazier in that area and going to the suburbs because that made it a little bit longer haul, especially, you know, getting off work and then having to, you know, drive your kid, drop them off the matches or actually go to the matches and then get out and drive all the way 25 minute drive back home. And there's like a, at least 20 minutes getting out of the Coliseum parking lot, which you never knew what was going to happen in that parking lot. I still have nightmares about that. But, um, at any rate, uh, you know, it's just weird. Like all this, it's just so much, so much stuff came flooding back and we walked up the, uh, some of the aisles and, and I tried to, I'm almost positive. I found these two seats that my uncle Robert and I figured out were the best deal in the joint. They were right below uh, general admission, a, a good distance away from general admission. But they were also uh, two seats over to the side. So they they were like together and you didn't have to worry. And you, nobody was sitting behind you. And the nearest person was across the aisle. There was like this, you know, that's where the there were just these two seats set to the side. And I'm always positive we were sitting in those seats for the first time when Superstar Graham won the CWA World Heavyweight title trophy which again, I think was one of Eddie Marlin's old bowling awards from journeyman Pat McGinnis and which was later, I guess, melted down and <laughs> transformed to one of the ugliest world championship belts ever made that the King eventually won to give Lawler some credibility as a world champion wrestler. Uh, I'm almost positive that those were the seats we were sitting in and yeah, it was, um, it was cool. And it, uh, I guess it, it just really hit me how long I've been away from home and how much I miss everybody, uh, especially my sister, who n- never quite shared the same passion for wrestling as me, but definitely got tickled watching my reactions to it which is a lot how my uncle Robert describes it. You know, I was his entertainment when he would take me to the matches. Anyway, um, so we pressed onward and upward amazingly. And we went into the catacombs of the Coliseum and up this catwalk that has this very uh, ominous looking sign saying like almost like point of no return, turn back now, walk carefully along this, uh, this, this, uh, you know, and it's barely lit. Uh, and it's a very thin catwalk. Uh, and briefly I thought about, of course, Brian Lawler, too sexy on the catwalk, on the catwalk. Yeah. He does his little dance on the catwalk. 
Anyway, and we go across to the point, and the guy says, this is where Jerry Lawler was lowered to the ring uh, sometime. And I go, yeah, it was actually uh, February 1981. The opponent was Drew LaDuke. Lawler had been... <laughs> you know, there's always that obnoxious guy who kind of takes over the tour and tries <laughs> to be like the tour. I was the, yeah, I was that guy on this particular... Yeah, but they were actually they were actually inviting me to to add whatever I could to it uh, because I think the guy who was leading the, I think his name is Koosh, uh, obviously a nickname. And this is, you know, before his time, he actually moved to Memphis after wrestling faded uh, into obscurity. Um, and the other gentleman uh, who was on Marvin Stockwell was not there, but even Marvin from the Coliseum coalition who we've had on the show before and who arranged the store. And thank you very much, Marvin, for reaching out and inviting me once again, uh, you know, he wasn't a wrestling fan either. So none of these guys were wrestling fans. So I was invited to kind of chime in and I gave them the background on the, how Lawler after his comeback was making all these grand entrances and you were constantly wondering how he was going to outdo himself. And so, you know, I think I actually, I think Lawler proposed the idea, like, what if I came from the ceiling? How would that work? Ah, that's crazy. And apparently this old guy who worked there talked Lawler into doing it. And little did Lawler know that he was going to be the only one operating this this handheld pulley that would lower Lawler down into the ring. Lawler just had a harness wrapped around him. And Lawler goes, because I got to say, this is on a car ride to Nashville. He goes, that was the scariest fucking moment I've ever had in the business. And you would never know it. Like if, <laughs> like if you watch that, I believe it's that My Way video where Elvis is covering Frank Sinatra's My Way, uh, the classic tune. And Lawler's lowering down. He's actually like flexing <laughs> as he's being lowered to, and pointed at Hart and LeDuc like, I'm going to get you. You would never know that Lawler was terrified. But if you think about what was on the other end with this old guy like going, uh, uh, and lowering him down, then you can probably understand why he probably feared for his life. Uh, and then, you know, that, that big contraption uh, is like, the, I guess it was the big PA speaker uh, that, you know, it eventually got this new technology, this digital scoreboard for the tiger football games or tiger basketball games, rather. Uh, I always envisioned that thing just snapping and then just coming down, it was it was hanging directly above the ring and just squashing the wrestlers below at one time. Or, and I was funny. I told Kevin Lawler that. And he goes, man, I used to think the same thing, that any day now that thing is going to snap, which I guess shows you just how weird, uh, what strange little children we were growing up in Memphis. And we went up by this one dressing room area. And, of course, he, and this guy goes, and this is Jerry Lawler's dressing room. Not too many people were allowed back here. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that right, Scott? I go, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I was back here a lot. Uh, yeah. He goes, and apparently a lot happened in the shower. And I went, I know nothing about that. <laughs> I had no, absolutely nothing about what went on in that shower. I can assure you. But that is the area where... Uh, I got my my uh, brief introduction into refereeing 101 when Jerry Cahoon uh, abruptly left his job. And I guess I was called in as the new skinny referee to offset the chubby bald referee. In this case, it was not Paul Morton, but Frank Morell, who was my, my uh, colleague. 
And I was assuming the Calhoun spot, I suppose. And Lawler, you know, was like, and he's getting ready for his, he's, you know, changing out of his head of street gear as he's going over this. And so I've got my childhood hero basically, you know, confirming everything I've ever suspected about wrestling being a work. And he's also getting undressed. So by the end of this talk, he's actually buck naked, which is, it's, it's like, I don't know what was a more surreal moment. <laughs> You know, him like saying, you know, a referee's got to pass information between the boys. And, you know, and if a guy's like, you know, your facial expressions are so important. If a guy's pulling here, you go, you know, you got to really like, hey, hey, quit that hair pulling and, you know, really wave the finger and project so that people can see you and all this. And meanwhile, he just he's peeling off his clothes, just getting buck naked. I don't know. Um, <laughs> just just re- really strange. I know Rick Flair has a reputation of. Uh, liking, to, uh, you know, having this fascination and with wanting everyone to see his body and getting naked. Lawler was a close second at the Coliseum. It was like this was his place. It was like his living room. And if he wanted to walk around naked, by God, he was going to do it. Uh, and I said, this is where we would get the finishes. And they were like, finishes? And I was like, oh, well, the ending to the match. And like Lawler would, you know, and I just love the, it's just the classic way that, that that Lawler would go over a match, you know, be like, okay, so here we go. So I'm fucking boom, 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 boom. Referee takes a fucking bump. Fucking hell. Here comes fucking Scott Bowden from the back. He ends dream machine, a fucking chair. Boom. Knocks me out. Bowden rolls the referee over. Fucking hell. Boom, boom, boom. Fucking one, two, three. Classic stuff. And then we went by this one dressing room area that was, uh, I guess, for one of the co-guys, which I guess would have been like Bill Dundee's dressing room. And there was just like the stack of red chairs, those famous red chairs that are visible in so many Coliseum shots. And many of which had broken across my back by the Moondogs uh, and Lawler and so many different guys over the years. I'd so desperately wanted to yank one of those chairs but i was like where where would i put it i i have nowhere to put it and then i thought well maybe i could fight my way out and i was like okay settle down just leave the chair alone and then you know i walk out and uh it's hazy it's overcast it's it's uh it's it was almost like uh going to awake for a building which is not really you know it's it's not a sad occasion i mean i think the coliseum's future is bright these guys have done a lot of work uh they had some investors in town recently uh i don't know there's you know there's the hope that they're going to turn it into a mid-sized venue i still don't know if that's feasible uh and basically what that would mean is they would remove about uh i guess about half the seating and make it about a 5500 seat arena because the argument is there is no real mid-sized venue and then if you really did it right and i always point to the forum in los angeles they've done a really great job of uh, restoring the dressing room area underground the building and turning it into a shrine of its past and built these really cool bars but the actual facade of the building when you walk it you, you feel like you're going to a concert in the 70s it's 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 really cool that they were able to pull that off and all these headline acts played the forum and Memphis is not even trying to do that or these guys from the Coliseum coalition are not even trying to do that they just want you know some maybe some some big names whose star has faded a bit to perform there uh maybe you know the the, the Coliseum was famous for its acoustics especially compared to the god awful pyramid i mean who ever thought that 
it was a good idea to have concerts in a pyramid-shaped arena. The acoustics <laughs> were absolutely horrible. And that kind of started a trend with like major acts avoiding Memphis like the plague. Uh, and again, Memphis is a town, it's it's real big on authenticity and it's real big on nostalgia. I mean, the Memphis Grizzlies debuted their new uniforms. Where else is an NBA team coming out with a with a wrestling version of their uniform? A tip of the hat to Memphis wrestling. It's absolutely crazy. Although I was a little disappointed to see that the jerseys weren't just like a singlet, you know, like Lawler used to have. And they were basketball teams down. They pulled the strap and there they go. That would be really unique. That would have been going all in for the Grizzlies. But uh, anyway, I, uh, as, I, as I got out of the Coliseum, I went to have some barbecue with my mom. We ate entirely too much. And then I fell asleep for about 10 hours. <laughs> and I woke up, not sure what day it was. It was, uh, it was really crazy because I'd been up the previous night before. It was obviously a very emotional homecoming. And so there was just no way that I couldn't find a ride to Nashville. I could have rented a car. Uh, that just seemed like a lot to do. And I kind of felt like my mom needed me. So uh, I stuck around town, which left me with the dilemma of, okay, how do I get to Nashville on Sunday? Well, I figured there's one guy who's probably not got much going on and would love the company. <laughs> That's Kevin Lawler. Uh, fresh off a shift from uh, Jerry Lawler's carpet cleaning service. Uh, Kevin and Tony Williams, Brian Lawler's old tag team partner from the New Kids. Obviously, another guy who obviously had nothing going on. <laughs> it was more than eager to join me on this fascinating drive from Memphis to Nashville uh, and the airport so I could catch a flight back to LAX. Uh, and it was cool. We were just talking about the old days of the NWA, the Neighborhood Wrestling Alliance, and Brian and our memories of him and just how it all turned out a lot differently than we thought it would. And of course, the little the little bastards. This is and this this is like this goes to show you just how stupid the wrestler mentality or the former wrestler mentality is. If you were ever in the wrestling business, your idea of what's funny and what constitutes a rib, right? We I'm excited because I see a Chili's on the way. Because you just don't see a Chili's in Los Angeles too often. <laughs> And I'm like, dude, I want to get some queso, man. I want to, I want to get like the, you know, they still do the happy hour where you order a beer and they bring you two, they bring you two, yeah. two at once. And I was actually, I was actually off limits from Chili's for the last year. I was actually banned from Chili's near the University of Memphis in a story I don't want to get into. But, uh, <laughs> all right. Anyway, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a story for another time. Okay. I kept, I kept taking the, um, I kept taking the hostess's mic and calling the next table and doing an impression of Elvis. Uh, Anderson, uh, your table's ready. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I was warned repeatedly, and I was like, one more time, and you're out of here. And they met it. And I think they had my picture behind the bar there for a while. Wow. Anyway, so as I go to the bathroom, and I come back, you know, and we're done eating and everything. I bring my. I had brought my computer bag because my life was in this bag, and I was not going to trust it to leave it in the car. I go through security and everything's fine. Get to get to get back to L.A. Kevin Lawler is like you know, ringing, calling me constantly. I finally pay. I'm like, what, what, what? And he's like, did you get the security? And I went, what? 
He goes, did you get the security? I go, yeah, of course I did, you idiot. Why? He goes, oh, geez. He goes, look in there. I look in there. There are two knives from Chili's that these two morons put in my bag. Like, this would be funny. How would I explain this? Two for one. Happy hour. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thanks. God, what a couple of goofs. But really, I almost would have been disappointed otherwise. I hope you haven't been disappointed with the lengthy layoff in between shows. We are going to try to get back on a more regular schedule because I love doing this and I hope you love it as much as I do. Just a reminder that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You can follow my co-host, Brian Last, at Great Brian Last on Twitter. You can find me at Trav Scott Bowden. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And also, support your favorite Memphis Wrestling Podcast. And right now, God knows there are plenty of them out there. And more on the way. Ah, talk about diluting the brand but you can support that good one by going to memphiswrestlingtees.com by shopping the wide array of mostly original t-shirts some slightly within violation of various copyright laws on that note there's a great new andy kaufman heels t-shirt taken backstage by infamous photographer george napolitano with andy with Lou Albano and the Moondogs, who would eventually make their way south and take the Southern Tag Team titles from the Fabulous Ones. Our next subject on Anatomy of an Angle. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of Championship Wrestling. <laughs>